The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for real estate investing and news strategies, all the latest tips and techniques. And today, because it is the middle of December, and yeah, I know you're all thinking about the holidays and the presents and the meals and the parties, but... Uh, this is also the right time to be thinking about tax savings for 2011. What you can do before the end of the year to minimize your tax bill for this year, not next year. <laughs> After January 1st, it's too late to minimize your tax bill for this year. My guest today is Chuck Vonderhari, CPA and past president of the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati. He's here not just to discuss some end-of-year tax planning techniques, but also to answer your questions. In the greater Cincinnati area, you can call us at 772-9658. If you're listening to us on the web, give us a call toll-free at 877-772-9658 or go to askvina.com, fill out the response form, and let us know from where you are contacting us. Well, good evening, Chuck. Good evening. Um taxes are not anybody's favorite topic well maybe yours but <laughs> there it's not it's not something that uh, that uh, real estate folks like to sit around and think about but uh, this is sort of a crucial time of year yes it is it's um just a few weeks to do your year end planning and you know make some decisions on what you're going to do before it's too late exactly so uh, we wanted to uh, cover, you know, an, a, 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 as much as we can in the, you know, hour or so that we're allotted here. Uh, starting with, are there any things that are new or that you think are coming up in the tax law that we need to be aware of? Well, right now, and probably because of the presidential election next year, not a whole lot is new. And traditionally, when we get around election time, we find that, you know, we find more tax cuts and we do tax increases. The thought would be that after the presidential election next year, tax rates will probably go up. The only thing maybe that might be that might save that would be if the economy is still where it is today. They may be a little hesitant to increase taxes to, you know, because it would hurt the economy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... At the moment, and maybe through the elections, <laughs> it's all um, <clears throat> good news as far as as far as that sort of thing happens. And I know there's some things uh, being tossed around in Congress about: Are we going to continue this or increase this or whatever? But um, 
the general direction in which taxes are headed, I think everybody agrees, over the next few years is probably up. Right, right, right. Yeah, the yeah the Bush tax cuts are still in effect right now through next year, uh, and again, you know, election year, uh, no politician wants to increase taxes because that's not exactly going to help them win votes. After they're elected, then times are different. Okay, very good. So um, our audience is is obviously primarily people who are in the landlording business or the flipping business, or they have something to do with real estate. Uh, you've been dealing with tax returns for real estate investors for, gosh, I don't even know how many years, 25? 33. 33. Almost 34. 34 years. So you have studied the tax code. You know where, you know where, the, where the things are hidden that people uh, don't know about, uh, where they can, they can save taxes legally by doing some things that they would not otherwise do. Uh, let's talk about some of those things. Okay. Where do we want to start? Well, um, let's talk about uh, uh, some of the deductions that folks are not aware of uh, having to do with things like sales taxes, state and local sales taxes versus state and local income taxes. Okay. Well, that's one of the provisions that's set to expire at the end of this year where you can deduct sales tax versus state and local tax. You get the greater of the two uh, set to expire at the end of this year. Will Congress increase it? Most of these things that are set to expire at the end of the year, every, most of the accountants and the tax professionals seem to think that uh, all these things will ex- will be extended another year. I was at a seminar last Wednesday up in Columbus, and um, you know the instructor, the leader of the seminar, talked about the very same thing that, yes, most probably Congress will extend it. And probably one of the biggest things Congress wants to extend is that 2% cut in the Social Security, um, you know, in your paycheck. Again, I think everybody likes taking home 2% more for the year. And, again, with uh, elections coming up, it's something that the politicians can all claim that, you know, look what we did for you. <laughs> yes, we uh, made the made the Social Security problem worse by giving yes, you 2% yes. back right now. Yes. <laughs> Probably the last thing I need to do is to cut it. But, again, I think that's something that hopefully is going to help stimulate the economy. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about um, those folks out there who have bigger, big enough operations that they have employees or are in a position where they need to hire an employee. Are there still tax credits out there uh, for, for uh, creating a job for a new employee? There are if you hire people who've been laid off or if you hire veterans, there are tax credits. Uh, there's a lot of red tape with those credits, so it's, you know, the credits are out there, but there's a lot of stipulations on, you know, how long they have to work and who you hire in order to get them. Red tape? Red tape, yes. What a surprise. Yes. <laughs> okay, uh, we need to take a quick break. I want to, again, invite listeners to uh, give us a call with any questions that you may have about your own tax return deductions, etc. cetera. Uh, Chuck does have over three decades experience in this field, and uh, this is a great time to pick the brain of somebody who you would normally have to pay to pick the brain of. So give us a call in the Cincinnati area at 772-9658, outside Greater Cincinnati at 877-772-9658, or go to askvina.com and send us an email through the response form. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is Chuck Vonderhaar, CPA, and we're talking about end-of-the-year ideas for saving taxes and saving it this year, not next year. 
Um, so again, Chuck, I know like, everybody's really involved right now in the holidays, and uh, you know this is this is stuff that uh, I don't know it may have occurred to some people. Oh, you know, last year I didn't do this, and maybe this year I, 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 I did do this. Uh, let's talk about, or I should do this. Let's talk about some of the things that uh, could be done still at the end of this, uh, toward the end of this year to minimize tax savings. And one of the things I'd like to address is there's a lot of folks out there who have sort of become determined that they need to sell a loser property. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they, they know they're going to lose money on it. But, uh, you know, it's just, you know how that is. You don't, you sure. don't focus a lot on, on selling loser properties. Uh, Tax-wise, when is the best time to sell a property that you know you're going to have a tax loss on? Probably as soon as you can get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so in terms of, um, in terms of uh, actually getting that deduction, you're going to get it in whatever year you sell it? Correct, the year you close. So if you close December 31st, the loss is this year. If you close January 2nd, the loss is next year. Okay, so what if we also have a winter property that we'd like to sell? Would it be good to sell those two things in the same year? In order to- well, your loss could offset the gain. Uh, losses can be limited to $3,000 a year. The other thing on the gain property is capital gains right now are at um, the all-time low of 15%. And again, that's one of the big things that everybody thinks will go up after the presidential election. So probably in 2013, Capital gains rates will probably go 20, 25%. So if you're looking to sell the winner, now is probably the time to sell the winner, pay the 15% and go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very good. Okay, so so other other things that we can do at, at the end of the year? Uh, one of the things, if there's something you're looking to buy, you want to you know, put in carpet cabinets, you need to buy supplies, but you don't have the cash, if you uh, you know go to the hardware store, use your Visa MasterCard, put it on the credit card, that's the same as paying cash for it this year, so you can deduct it this year. Um, so again, you know, using the credit card is the same as paying cash, even though, you, of course, you wouldn't get the credit card statement until January and pay it in January. Maybe you pay it over 12 months or whatever. But again, credit card is a great way to uh, to increase your deductions this year by without really having to pay for them until next year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for for a lot of people who are, um, particularly in the wholesaling business and the landlording business, in recent years, they've done very well. The the income from their rental properties, uh, I mean, well, as you know, (laughs) rental properties purchased in 2006, if it was a single family home and it was here in the Midwest, and you really cleared $50 a month, you were were having a good day. And now some of the properties that folks are buying, they're clearing four to $500 a month. And uh, if you're used to seeing a negative number at the bottom of that form because of the depreciation, you might want to work that out now and see if it's not a positive number at the end. Because there's a lot of landlords who are suddenly being surprised by having to pay tax. (laughs) They've never paid tax before. And uh, I remember one of my father's uh, uh, tricks was around December 15th, he'd actually start prepping his taxes for, for the next year. And if there was if there was a positive number that he owed <laughs> at that bottom line, uh, he'd go out and, and, and buy seriously 100 gallons of paint because, you know, he always painted all the units the same color. Okay. So he'd buy 100 gallons of paint or he'd, he'd, uh, he'd pay the real estate tax bills that aren't officially due until January. Yeah in December or uh, just about anything he could do to bring that number back closer to zero because, again, a lot of folks who own rental properties are not used to seeing a tax bill. 
Right. In most cases, yeah, we I have found over the years of doing this that maybe now where you're buying, you know, the property that sold at a hundred thousand dollars a few years ago, you're buying it for sixty today. But in most cases, it was usually eight to ten years before anybody would show a profit on a piece of property. Uh, today, that might not be the same as if you're buying them at a you know much deeper discount today. So yes, it is possible to show a positive cash flow. But again. You know, look at what what about administrative expenses and some of those things that you should be you know deducting against the property. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And with wholesalers who also you know many of them have had very good years this year, but they don't have supplies to buy in the sense of of building supplies, and they don't have property taxes that they can prepay. Uh, doing something like ordering all your business cards for the next year, this year, and and ordering all your letterhead and pre-printing some postcards and things like that can help cut down on the um, on the size of your tax bill. Uh, now, Chuck, we do have a question, and I I, I want to repeat the phone numbers again: seven seven two nine six five eight in the Greater Cincinnati area, eight seven 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 two nine six five eight, or go to askvina.com and you can send an email through the response form. There on that site. Uh, this one is about 1031 exchanges. Are we okay, okay to talk about 1031 sure, exchanges? Sure. He says, uh, Chuck, I've heard of some exchange me- intermediaries running off with the investors' money that they held. <laughs> How do I find a great 1031 company that I can trust to do things right? Also, and this is a separate question. Also, how soon can I tax-free exchange a property after I've bought it if my initial intent was to hold it? And and listeners, remember, public radio, Chuck can't say go to this 1031 exchange intermediary. But I think the question is, how do I know I've got one I can trust? Uh, I think by referral, how long they've been in business, uh, you know, comfort level, how big are they? Uh, you know, I, I think you could probably ask for some proof. You know, their financials. Or some outside proof, maybe you know from the bank or somebody, if you're really that concerned. And yes, that has been a problem where some you know 1031 exchange people have run off of the money. Um, but again, I, I think that's very far and few between. Um, you know, it's like all these things you hear about. It's yes, there's you know one or two people make it sound bad for everybody, but I don't think that's been a problem in this area. I think most of those have been you know East Coast, West Coast kind of things. Places where they're going to be holding on to half a million dollars in an exchange yes. as opposed to $50,000 yes. in an exchange, which it may not be uh, worth it to spend 20 years in the federal penitentiary for. So yes. the other question has to do with how soon one can tax-free exchange a property after they've bought it if the initial intent was to hold. Uh, there is no <clears throat> set definition or time. It is generally recommended that you wait at least one tax year. So if they did the exchange in December of 11, uh, it suggests you wait till 13, but that's not the official uh, rule. You know, what is your intent? If your intent is to hold it for investment and you exchange it, you should be okay. Now, again, if the IRS were to audit you, you're probably going to have to have some you know good support because otherwise they're going to assume that it really wasn't an exchange. And I, I had that happen once, probably about 10 years ago, where a lady exchanged into on a property and then somebody you know, approached her um, unexpectedly and said, you know, I want to buy it. And she did it. And, you know, she did another exchange. And, of course, the IRS never looked at it, so it went through. But, um, you know, you, you could really do it the next day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very interesting listener question because I was approached uh, just two days ago by a local investor who purchased a bank-owned property, had every intention of renovating it renting it, and literally two or three days after he bought it, he was contacted by the city 
And the city said, we've been trying to buy this property to tear it down because we're trying to put a new sewer in for two years, but the bank would never respond to us. Now, will you sell it to us? Huh. And it, it was literally, I mean, he, the, from, from closing to closing was three months. And yes, of course, he wants to exchange it sure. because that was uh, it was intended to be held. Huh. You know, the other thought there, you know, if the city would have condemned the property or taken it by eminent domain, then you really have a couple years to uh, you know to replace the property. Hmm. But yes, um, I would think that 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 would that would be good because you know the city. It's not like uh, you know I exchanged with you and were you know kind of insiders here. If the city approached him, it's a totally independent party. So I would think that that, that wouldn't be a problem with the IRS if, if they were to get audited. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's talk about IRA contributions of various kinds because. Um, there was a time, and I don't know if this is still true, where you actually had until sometime following the first of the year in order to make contributions for the prior year. Is that still the case, or do we need to get those things in? No, still the case. You still have until April 15th of the following year to make your IRA you know, for the previous year. So you really have about a, uh, what, 15 and a half month time frame from January 1 of 11 till April 15th of 12 to put money into an IRA. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, health savings accounts. Yes. Uh, we had a we had a, a guest on a few weeks ago, Quincy Long from Quest IRA, and he was talking about the uh, the very attractive nature of self directed health savings accounts because apparently the uh, contribution you make is tax deductible, and then if you take it back out again for qualified expense, you don't pay taxes on it. Unlike you know, most IRAs, are either taxed on the way in or taxed on the way out. Uh, are are those uh, also uh, things that we could do after the first of the year? Uh, yes, you have until uh, like April 15th of next year, retroactive for the health savings. And again, you know, really the health savings account is pr- kind of like an IRA, except it has a different intent. The health savings is for medical purposes. Uh, you know, you can put in the money, and if you take it out for medical, it's, it's tax-free. So you're getting the deduction, and then as long as the money comes out for medical, there is no taxable income to you. And really, is it's... it's um, you could fund that. You could fund an IRA. So really, it's a great vehicle to defer money. And the nice thing about it is, if you you know don't need it for this year for health, but next year you can still take it out. So, uh, yeah, a great way to um, you know to defer money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are some other common overlooked deductions or planning that that uh, folks need to think about before the end of the year? Um, I think one is home office. Um, a lot of people think home office is nothing more than a red flag. Um, and over the past five to ten years, the IRS has relaxed their rules on home office. And the crucial thing, I think, with a home office deduction for real estate investors, it's not so much, you know, you already get your mortgage, you already get your real estate taxes, and then you get a portion of utilities and insurance and those kinds of things. Um which is not, you know, a, you know, fantastic deduction, but the crucial thing with the home office, if you claim a home office, if it's your principal place of business, then your mileage when you leave home is business miles versus commuting. So if you don't have a home office, you back out of the driveway and you drive 10 miles to work on a rental property, that's commuting non-deductible mileage. If your home office is your principal place of business, when you back out of the driveway and you drive 10 miles to work on the rental, then that's business miles or rental uh, miles mileage for the rental. So again, I think the home office is a uh, a crucial deduction, and so many people think that the home office is a red flag, but actually in thinking here, um, I don't think, I, I'm not so sure I've ever had a home office be a concern in an audit 
And if it is, it's been a number of years, and that's back in the days when almost nobody qualified for home office. And again, today, they have really relaxed the rules. For instance, in my case, even though I have a primary office that I go to every day, I'm allowed a home office if I do administrative things, you know, like uh, prepare payroll and, you know, work on payroll kinds of things. Um, you know, if I do that at home, I'm entitled to a home office. So, again, I think that's pretty generous. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people overlook exactly how much that mileage stacks up. If you have if you have multiple properties or if you're out looking at multiple properties, uh, you know, I, I, I honestly, for, for business travel, I seriously, no uh, exaggeration, put twenty five to 30,000 miles a year on my car. Yes. And, you know, you, you hate you hate to get the little book and you hate to sit and write down, you know, here's what it was when I left and here's what it was when I come back. But when you do that and you add it up at the end of the year, it is a nice chunk of change for deduction. Crucial, crucial deduction, yes. Uh, yeah, you know, and of course you should have the mileage log and all that. You know, that's what the IRS is going to ask for. But again, if you have the home office, that's going to increase your mileage deduction. And again, it, you know, over the last few years, the mileage uh, deduction has been somewhere 50, 55 cents a mile. Uh, you know, you don't have to really drive that far to come up with a few hundred miles and, you know, again, a few hundred hours in deductions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So good New Year's resolution get the mileage books, to get in the visor, get in the habit of writing down <laughs> where you went. Um, okay, we need to take a quick break. Again, my guest today is Chuck Vonderhaar. He is a CPA, and we're talking about uh, end-of-year tax deductions, tax planning. If you have any questions, give us a call at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 or go to askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, talking today to Chuck Vonderhaar, who is a uh, very experienced CPA, particularly in the real estate field. And as you have heard over and over on Real Life Real Estate, if you are a frequent listener, when you build your team, you have to build it with people who understand your business. Because, Chuck, I have heard... Many, many new investors, they'll, they'll buy a few properties and then they'll have the guy who's always done their taxes do their taxes. And they get told things like, oh, you better not take depreciation because that's a red flag to the IRS and they're going to audit you. Or, uh, you know, you can't deduct the class that you took that led into you doing all of these things. And uh, just because somebody is, and, and not to pick on CPAs, CPAs, attorneys, title agents, I don't care who they are. If they're not experienced in working with investors, they can't always provide the proper advice in whatever their field is for investors. I, I just had a call this afternoon from a real person who is going through that very same thing. They're fairly new, and the person they're with doesn't believe in you know uh, you know having a partnership or another entity and all those kinds of things. So he called and was talking to me about it today. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my favorite part is when they call you and they say. You told me that I should get an LLC for asset protection, but now my other CPA is telling me that that's illegal. Yeah, <laughs> it's, you know, just wrong, it's just wrong advice. Uh, we have a couple of callers on the line. Well, uh, let's start on line one with Abigail in Cincinnati. Abigail, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Very glad to, Abigail. Do you have a question for Chuck? I do. Um, I am in the process of looking at windows, but I purchased a furnace already. Is there a limit on how much money I can claim on my taxes this year? Is this for your personal residence or rental? It's half and half. Um, 
the energy credit only applies to the personal residence, and yes, there are limits on windows and doors. It's only like a couple hundred bucks for this year. Okay. Uh, the rental part, like if you're living in a two-family, uh, you know, the half of the two-family would be probably depreciated over a period of time. Right. Um, yeah, the thing of it is, if you're looking to do it, you ought to do it for the end of this year because the, the, the energy credits at this point are set to expire at the end of the year. And if you can get the windows in, um, you know, the in, windows in for the end of the year, you can get some depreciation on them this year. Yeah, so, so in other, is, is it the situation that it's a, uh, like a two-family or something of that nature, Abigail? It is. Okay. So the, the, does, it, does the whole two-family only have one furnace by any chance? It does. Okay. That's, that's always an interesting situation. I've known several people who've been in, in this situation, and uh, how you decide to handle that two-family uh-huh. that is half-investor property uh, for tax purposes is interesting because I understand, Chuck, that you can depreciate half half the basis right. of the property right and you could because there's only one furnace depreciate, depreciate half yeah. the half the value of the furnace and there is no limit to that uh abigail you could you could completely redo the other side of that two family spend forty thousand dollars on it and you would still get your deduction or your depreciation depending on what kind of repair it was now the, mm. other, the other thing like in a two family is you could also look at square footage if the two family really is say um, a house with three floors, and you live on the you know, first floor and rent out the other two, then you could do like a one-third, two-third, or based on square footage. Now, again, if it's a two-family, both sides are identical. It's a 50-50 deal. Yes. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So, so it sounds Thank like, you. yeah, do it before the end of the year, Abigail. Yes. <laughs> I hear you. Let's Thank get, you. Let's get the deduction this year. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Let's go to line two. Tracy calling from Cincinnati. Tracy, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, thank you. Um, I I just recently purchased my first rental home um, about a month ago, and a friend of mine was trying to explain like depreciating the property to me, and I really don't get it, and I kind of I don't understand when I can actually start doing that. Okay, first of all, Tracy, congratulations. Thank you on, on purchasing your first rental home, and uh, yeah, this 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 is a, depreciation is an area that confuses a lot of people, including I suspect your friend. So, yes. <laughs> Chuck, Chuck, at what part? At what point can she start depreciating her rental? Uh, generally, you can start depreciating the rental when you what they call place and service means you make it available to rent. So uh, now again, you know if you're looking to depreciate it, you know get the deduction this year. You probably want to do something like the Craigslist or the Inquirer or something just so that you have proof to the IRS that you did attempt to rent it. If, of course, you put a sign in the front yard and you're successful in renting it, then that's not a problem. But this time of the year, you know, with trying to rent uh, and the proof, you should have some outside uh, kind of thing. But again, yes, placing it in service when you attempt to rent it or when it's ready to be rented is when you start the depreciation. Okay. And and Tracy, let me. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, ask ask Chuck another question that you need to stay on the line for because it's gonna blow your mind. Sure. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Chuck, componentized depreciation. Okay. Uh, let, let's let's tell Tracy what that is and what she needs to look at in that property if she decides that she wants to try going that direction. Okay. What they mean by the component depreciation? If you go out and buy a rental for a hundred thousand um, dollars. You know, you can either a just break out land and building. So again, let's just say the land's worth fifteen thousand, the building's worth eighty-five thousand. You can only depreciate the building for eighty-five thousand by the component depreciation um, or cost segregation type depreciation. What they mean is we go in and take that hundred thousand-dollar house and try to break out the value of 
things like the landscaping and the garage and the sidewalks and the furnace and the windows so that we can depreciate a lot of those things over a shorter period of time. So again, instead of depreciating the building for $80,000 or $90,000, we want to pull out the kitchen cabinets, the carpet, those kinds of things that can be depreciated over a shorter period of time. So in mm -hmm. other words, Tracy, see, I told you that was going to blow your mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the building itself, is, I'm assuming it's a single family home. Uh, yes. you, you have to take, you have to take the basis, which is basically what's the building worth versus the land and divide that over 27 and a half years. And that's how much you get to write off each year. But if, okay. if you're one of these recent buyers who managed to get a deal where you're going to, even with that, you're going to end up paying taxes <laughs> on the income at the end of the year, you can say, well, okay, so this furnace here, it's worth $2,000, you know, pick, pick, pick a number. And because furnaces can be depreciated over a much shorter period of time, you can take that value, divide it by that period of time, and with the major components, like the roof, the furnace, the, as Chuck said, the kitchen cabinet, sidewalks, things like that, uh, you end up with a much bigger number at the end to offset okay. against your income. And uh, some, some of whether or not she would want to bother to do this has to do with her whether or not she can claim status as a real estate professional and what her other income is, I believe. Yeah, the other thing too is how aggressive do you want to be? Do you need the depreciation of your income's low, your income's high? All those kinds of things can play into that decision. Okay, so just okay. To, now, now you go back and tell your friend about that and see what happens. I will. <laughs> see see, I mean, see if their head explodes. He won't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, it sounds like I have some pretty good deductions coming my way. Yes, you do. Good job. <laughs> Well, thank right. you. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks for your help. Okay, right. thank you. Bye. Thank you Bye -bye. so much for your call, Tracy. I, I love hearing people say I bought my first rental property. Yes. I'm like, yay. I probably had nothing to do about with that, and I still feel proud somehow. <laughs> I, I don't know why. Uh, okay, so uh, some other questions that came in via email, Chuck. Um, this does not specify how the earned income is coming in, but I have to assume it's from real estate investors since it is uh, real life real estate. What are some legal ways that I might be able to convert some of my earned income that's subject to payroll taxes to other types of income like interest, rents, capital gains, and so on that are taxed at a lower rate and may not be subject to all that payroll tax garbage? <laughs> <laughs> well, payroll tax garbage. Never heard it called that. I've heard it called a few other things that we probably wouldn't want to repeat on the air. Um, you know, the payroll tax issue or the self-employment, so security earned income issues really is based on the nature of the income. So again, if I'm out there as a painter, as an accountant, that's earned income subject to social security. Uh, rental income, social security income, unemployment, interest dividends, those are other types of income not subject to self-employment or social security. So again, what is your trade or business? In my case, you know, I'm an accountant, so everything I earn is subject to social security. My rental income is not subject to self-employment or Social Security. Um, generally, you know, the thing of it is, is if you're, um, you know, say a realtor and you make $10,000, I mean, the thing you could do is offset the $10,000 with all the various deductions. You know, we talked about the home office. What about your license? What about your mileage? You know, mileage is another thing we've talked about before. So in that $10,000 of income or $50,000 of income, uh, you know, the legal way to reduce it is reduce it by the expenses that pertain to that type of income. Okay. 
Very good. Uh, we need to take a quick break. Uh, again, inviting you to call in with your end-of-year tax planning questions. 772-9658 if you're here in the greater Cincinnati area. If you're listening to us on the web, give us a call at 877-772-9658 or just go over to askvina.com, fill in the response form, and send us an email. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're talking today about taxes. Yay, everybody's favorite subject. But come on, if you've been in business for yourself, you know that the IRS is your number one expense. It's your biggest partner. And learning how to legally make that little bill as small as possible is always a good thing. Talking to Chuck Vonderhaar, CPA. Our numbers here in the studio are 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. You can also go to askvina.com, click send Vina a question, and uh, it will come here to the station. Uh, but you better do that pretty quickly because there's often about a five-minute delay between the time you do that and the time I receive it. So then I leave, and then there's some really important question that I get when I get home, and I'm not a CPA, so I won't be able to answer it. Uh, received a question from askvina.com from Robert in Hudson, Ohio. Uh, Robert, this is not a question that uh, we can answer on the air, being public radio and all. But if you want to um, send me another email uh, for, through askvina.com with your email address in it, because when I get them, they don't have your email address in them. They say that they came from askvina.com. Uh, I will forward the I will forward the question to Chuck, and uh, he will answer it for you. Uh, okay, another question uh, that came in from a listener via email. Uh, Chuck, could you please help sort out the confusion created by the government's interference in the foreclosure and deed in lieu process? We have a lot of pretty libertarian listeners. You might, <laughs> you might be gathering that. When a lender does a short sale or a note discount or foreclosure, they issue a 1099 to the borrower for debt forgiveness, right? Does that debtor have a tax liability? If so, can they get out of it? <laughs> well, um, maybe we should have taken that question at 6 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me start here and see if I can answer some of those questions Or again. Okay, yes, if you, uh, whether it's uh, relief of debt through credit cards, uh, foreclosure, short sale, deed in lieu, you hand it back to the bank, whatever it might be, um, a, if it's your principal residence, generally on your principal residence, there's an exclusion to where you probably will not pay tax, generally. Now, again, there are exceptions to that. If it's investment, rental property, uh, you know, some kind of a business property other than your primary residence, it is a taxable event. Um, then the other part of the question is, how is that property secured? Is it recourse, non-recourse? Uh, there's two calculations on one, one calculation on the other. So again, recourse versus non-recourse, you know, we look at the uh, liability, the market value of the property, the debt relief, and there's some gain or loss. Now, part two of that is the IRS has come out and said, okay, if you're insolvent, you may not have to pay tax on that, and there's a worksheet that you fill out, and... Um, Basically, insolvent means your liabilities are more than your assets. So again, if I own a $100,000 home and uh, you know, a $10,000 car, and on those two things I owe $150,000, those are my only assets and liabilities, and I'm insolvent and most probably would not be subject to tax. And again, 
I'm kind of giving generic answers versus you know exact answers because I'm not knowing your specific situation. But yes, anytime you have debt relief, you have a taxable event. And again, uh, you know what I have seen in the last few years, and again going back six, seven years ago, I probably couldn't have answered that question because we never saw it. And all of a sudden, in the last four, five, six years, we've gotten a lot of unfortunately have gotten a lot of experience in the debt relief area. And yes, it is a taxable event, but the thing we're finding in most cases, if you turn a property back to the bank, and again, this is, say, a rental property, we're finding most people end up with a loss um, you know, because the worth of the property and what the property sells for and all that is generally much less than you're probably going to get if it's in tip-top shape. So yes, it's a taxable event. Could be a gain, could be a loss, but again, what we're finding generally is that people are getting losses more so than gains. But again, that's not in every case. It's mm-hmm. a case by case. But again, those are all the factors you need to fill in. If you're interested, and I don't recall the uh, publication, but the IRS has a pretty good publication out with, that deals with the debt relief and the insolvency and all those issues. And again, there are a number of exceptions for insolvency and debt relief where we're finding in most cases people are not paying tax on the debt relief other than if the only debt relief is credit cards. So again, if I have a Visa MasterCard and I owe you know, $12,000 and I call Visa MasterCard and we negotiate a deal and I pay them two grand, at the end of the year, I'm going to get a 1099 on that, which is going to be other income. I'm going to pay tax on the 10 grand. But again, when it comes to the rental property, business property, or the loss of the primary residence, which finding generally people are not paying tax on it. Okay. And let me ask a a follow-up question to that, Chuck. Uh, Would that, uh, many investors are in the position at this point where they are, they are doing what is um, euphemistically called strategic defaults. I mean, they, they're, you know, they've been carrying properties that they bought at the top of the market at a loss every month for five years. And they finally made the decision that they cannot keep taking food out of their family's mouths to feed a property that they have no idea when the value of it might recover. Uh, would the insolvency issue apply entity to entity? Because many people, they'll have one entity that's got five properties in it, a different entity that has five more properties in it. Do you have to prove that entity one is insolvent or do you have to prove that you're insolvent? Uh, generally, the insolvency is at the individual level. Okay. Again, generally. Okay. So that might that might help make the decision about uh, which properties go back to the yes, bank if yes, that is yes. if that is the case because uh, you may have one entity that everything except this one property is doing great and you may have another one where four out of five are not doing so well. Uh, another follow up question that we just received by email to that uh, the question is is the lender legally allowed to waive the ten ninety nine or can only the Fed do that? In other words, can can the lender say, well, we won't send you a 1099 as part of the short sale negotiation? Well, what I've usually recommended to people is, you know, as part of the negotiation, make sure you know what the lender is going to put on that 1099 because that's kind of the crucial numbers uh, as far as computing gain or loss. Legally, I think they are required to issue the 1099A or C. <clears throat> it's my understanding they're legally, but I'm not sure on the legal end. I just know on the tax end is – you know, when those numbers go on there, those are the numbers we pretty much have to use as part of the negotiation, try to find out up front what they're going to do just so you don't get a surprise. Because, again, what I have found, not so much the last 
year or so, but four or five years ago, with all the uh, you know when the economy kind of fell, people thought when they uh, negotiated the deal with the the Visa Mastercard and they walked away with you know eight or ten thousand dollars of credit card relief that they thought they were home free, and then come January, they got the surprise in the mail when the ten ninety nine showed up. Okay, very good. A um, little bit of a, a more complex question. I'm guessing this is a, a, a somewhat more intermediate type investor. He wants to know about straight line and accelerated depreciation when buying and leasing a rental property. Are there any quick rules of thumb I can use to estimate what those would be so that I can guess at how much income will be offset and whether or not I'll have extra paper losses? Um, going back to the depreciation on the building is pretty much straightforward. If it's residential, it's 27 and a half years. If it's commercial, it's 39 years. Um, so that's probably, you know, a quick calculation is take the purchase price of the building and say it's $100,000. And again, on the $100,000, you have to make an allowance for land and building. Again, let's say, you know, $100,000 building, we say the land is worth 10, the building's worth 90. If we take the 90 and divide it by 27 and a half years or 39 years, whatever the case might be, that's going to get you a pretty close estimate. Now, again, if they just bought the building in December, they're not going to get the full year. Take it divided by the 27 and a half years and then, again, divide that by 12 for the month of December. And that should give you a pretty good idea of what the depreciation is going to be. Okay. Well, we have about two minutes left in the program, Chuck. And uh, best tax tips, all right, for the, for the folks who are listening best thing that can that can save them taxes in 2011 and beyond planning uh you know kind of probably the obvious not so obvious i think planning record keeping uh i think you know that um in planning again you know planning to try and do your ira again trying to plan your income and deductions you know just so that this year we don't find that you have you know a $10,000 loss next year you have a $200,000 income um, again, planning and record keeping to me are crucial. It's kind of like the diet and exercise. And those of you that know me know that diet and exercise is not my forte. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and again, it's the same in record keeping. We find that most people, you know, they have good intentions on January the 2nd for record keeping. And about April the 15th, they have good intentions for record keeping, but they don't. And again, planning, sit down and think, you know, again, the old saying is people spend more time planning a part of than they do their finances. Sit down, look at your situation. What can I do this year? What can I do next year? Should I have the income this year? Should I have it next year? And again, I'm finding this and I'm doing a presentation in January and uh, going to talk about that, you know, disposing of property. And one of the crucial things is what if the capital gains goes to 20%? You know, so again, think and plan, uh, I think, are the crucial things. Okay, so another New Year's resolution next year. Yes. Really and truly, I'm going to plan, because not only does that help you plan plan ways to um, save on taxes, it also makes your tax preparation cheaper, yes. in my experience. And yes, that New Year's resolution has to go past January 3rd. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay, well, we are uh, just about out of time here. So, uh, Chuck, thank you so much for coming okay, thank in you. during the holidays and sharing your expertise. Uh, if you're in the greater Cincinnati area, don't forget that the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati's wholesaling subgroup meeting is tonight at 7 o'clock at Max and Irma's in Rookwood Pavilion. Uh, we will see you there, and we will be back next week to with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.